to Weird Comics History. My name is Reggie. My name is Chris. And we bring you some weird comics history every week through the WeirdScienceDCComics.com podcast feed. You can find us on iTunes, Podbean, Google Play, Stitcher, and any Russian torrent site you could imagine. Uh, so just subscribe to Weird Comics, Weird Science DC Comics dot com, and you will uh, find us in your feed every Sunday morning. Chris, this is the first time I can say in ten episodes or ten solo, you know, standalone episodes that the history we're doing is genuinely weird. Yes, this is a very very weird time in comics. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to discuss the uh, Marvel. You decide, stunt. <laughs> this is uh, happened in 2002, and it was a uh, was a very very odd few months where uh, the publisher, uh, the editor in chief, and a creator all competed for sales. Of <laughs> uh, Marvel, this is a Marvel. This is Marvel comic. A Marvel story right here, uh, and you know, I, I guess really either publisher can lay claim to their. Uh, funny gimmicks and stunts, but this one I think really does take the cake, and it's important in your personal history, too. Um, yeah, I was, uh, I, I was a, one of them, uh, what do they call them, the Marvel zombies? Yeah. I was one of them. Um, I uh, probably have just about every single issue they put out from 99 to around the time Civil War came out. Um, yeah, and, I, and I've, I've been buying Marvel comics since, like, 89, but uh, I really, um, I really bought into this uh, to the, to the just the Marvel zeitgeist. You know, I was really just, I couldn't get enough. <laughs> and also, you know, you're a young adult. You yeah, had new, some, you had some found, dispensable uh, income. Dis- yes. The, uh, the 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 components were correct to make sure that you were going to get uh, sucked into all this. But you know, it's the stars aligned. I have a lot of really cool stuff from two thousand one, two thousand two. Yeah, but you also have a lot of this. Anyway. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, uh, so let's let's get a jump right into it. Yeah. Um, well, we got to set the stage first, and uh, we're going to talk very briefly about just the turn of the century in Marvel comics. Uh, a lot of uh, our listeners will know that in December of 1996, Marvel fi- filed for uh, Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection, um, which I'm sure, uh, given our uh, schedule, we will get to yeah. eventually. Eventually, we're going to do a history of Marvel, and I imagine this yeah. will be figure into it somewhere. Yeah, I would imagine. Um, in 1997, uh, Toy Biz and Marvel Entertainment Group merged to end the bankruptcy, and they formed the corporation Marvel Enterprises Incorporated. And uh, among the uh, the big wigs there was uh, Toy Biz co-owner Isaac Pearl. Is it what do you think, Pearlmutter? Pearlmutter is what I would say. Yeah, we'll say Pearlmutter. Uh, a, a guy named Avi Arad, who I think was uh, he was like the Marvel Studios guy before there was a uh, Marvel Studios. Huh. <laughs> and uh, and Bob Harris, who was the editor in chief, they were vital in stabilizing the comics line during the you know during the the sweep up. Um, we're going to talk just a bit about Bob Harris. He was uh, born January 11th, 1959, in somewhere in New Jersey. Uh, he was the uh, Marvel editor-in-chief from 1995 to 2000. And uh, this was right after a time, and it was uh, another weird time in Marvel history, yeah. where they didn't just have one editor-in-chief. They had five. There was like a Spider-Man editor-in-chief. A well, they, they, sort of, they almost adopted a DC model. In a way, you know, like uh, the Silver Age DC, like, exactly, yeah, like old school DC stuff. model. So it's really, it's really funny that they sort of went back there. Yeah, and it was weird, and uh, 
it was a mess. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, so Harris, he oversaw the X Men. He was uh, he was the guy responsible, one of the guys responsible for even getting Chris Claremont kicked off the book at the you know the turn of the nineties. But uh, he became the you know mutant editor in chief. Uh, he oversaw the X Men during uh, the boom period, basically, including you know all those crossovers, including the Age of Apocalypse, which was uh, a pretty big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also oversaw the Spider-Man clone saga and the Burn Mackey <laughs> reboot, <laughs> as well as uh, Heroes Reborn. So, uh, not you know, not batting a thousand here. Well, you know, Heroes Reborn was kind of a mixed bag itself, so it's, I, I didn't feel like that was a total failure. Just well, you know. Heroes Return was pretty good. Heroes. Am Reborn I thinking of the wrong thing? Heroes Reborn is is the Liefeld the boob captain though, right? Yes, that's with Liefeld Lee. It was when they they licensed. The Captain America, Iron Man, the Avengers, and the Fantastic, the Fantastic Four. Four. Image. And that and was okay. I, I remember the Fantastic Four was okay. <laughs> Maybe I'm it wrong. It was probably the least. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, that's one of those things I try to read through. Like if you know, I really have a taste for like late '90s cheese. I give that a shot. I can never get through it. Wow. Um, now on. And you have guess, quite a constitution for this kind of stuff too. I want to point out. So if you can't get through it, that means something. I read Youngblood, so yeah, <laughs> for sure. Uh, just sometimes you're in the mood for that kind of thing. I can't explain it. Um, August 29th, 2000, it was announced that uh, Joe Quesada was promoted to lead, oper- uh, I'm sorry, lead editorial operations as the editor-in-chief with uh, Bill Jemis play, uh, taking a hands-on uh, approach as Marvel's president of publishing, licensing, and new media. And this rumor hit the internet via Warren Ellis on his Delphi forums at 6.30 that evening. And he says, I've just heard that Bob Harris left Marvel at 3 p.m. Eastern today. No details. Wow. <laughs> then the shot with the head went back and to the left. Back and to the left. Back and to the left. Uh, so in this news release, it was stated that Bob Harris would remain with the company as an editorial advisor on high-profile special projects, but that didn't quite happen. We don't we didn't really <laughs> see too much of him at Marvel after that, or any of him at all. Yes. Uh, he went to work for Jim Lee at Wildstorm, which had already been purchased by DC effective January 1999. Uh, there were widely spread rumors in regard to the why behind fire, firing of Harris, and they often land on his failure to capitalize on the success of the first X-Men film. Which could be true, because Chris Claremont's X titles were, like, very dense, inaccessible to longtime readers, and they definitely were not going to attract the movie fan audience that were new yeah. to these characters. Uh, I recall this time being particularly dense and impenetrable, and that is... And didn't feature any of the movie characters, really. Yeah. It very... It's like they actually went out of their way to... Counter counteract any potential new readers coming in. Well, you know, sort of knowing what we know about Claremont now, I don't think that's impossible. <laughs> this is very, very possible. I think he might have been like, screw these whippersnappers <laughs> or whatever his problem was. Um, there was also an X-Men sampler comic included in, in the TV Guide, and it was a piece of shit. Now, you got to remember, at the time, a TV Guide was a regular weekly circulation of 8 million households. The entire population of New York City... My grandmother got it every single week, you know, I had it, and I actually used to look at ones going back to the 50s and 60s just to sort of see, you know, how they were, because I'm sort of a weird sure. character like that. Uh, I mean, this was, it's so funny because it's, it doesn't exist anymore. I, is there anything yeah. even published? Is there anything printed? Why would there be, you know? 
think it's like an actual like a like a tabloid size magazine. I think I've seen it as like more yeah. uh, and it's more about like soap operas. It's not the it's t- stories. Why yeah. would you want to have the t- the TV listings are right there on your on your cable guide? So, but you have to understand this was so ubiquitous this magazine yeah. it was everywhere so by by screwing this up that was a bad bad look right there yeah, that's yeah. a lot of eyes that could have been on the x-men very it? much yeah and, and when they, they saw it <laughs> it was garbage they, they went right to the the uh cigarette ad coming up yes. next or whatever it was <laughs> so of special note harris's firing ultimately led to a long time marvelite al milgram being canned from marvel as well for sneaking a mean message into universe x colon spidey number one january 2001 and i remember this because i've seen it Online, it's it's on the spines of a bunch of books, really, right? Yeah. Uh, and it reads, "Ha, Harris, ha ha, he's gone. Good riddance to bad rubbish. He was a nasty sob. Uh, the issue had to be recalled. The original now goes for anywhere between a hundred dollars and five thousand dollars on eBay. But as I did, as I'm sure, well, Chris, you, do you have this particular I issue? I don't have the. I I think I missed the. Uh... The actual one. The first one, yeah. I don't, I don't want yeah. people to come breaking down your door trying to get that $5,000 plum anyway. <laughs> but anyway, it's easy to find. If you Google uh, Al Milgram, Bob Harris, you, probably the first thing you'll, you'll see is this panel. If, so take yeah, a if look. You look. If you just Google Universe X Spidey, it'll fill in the rest. Yeah, for sure. Now, we're going to meet the new bosses here. We mentioned uh, a, a fellow by the name of Bill Je- Are we saying Jemis or Jemis? I say Jemis. I'll do Jemis, too. All right. Uh, he was born 1958, no date, <laughs> in Princeton, New Jersey. Uh, he graduated from Rutgers in 1980, majoring in history with a minor in philosophy and economics. Oh. He, received, <laughs> he received his Juris Doctor in uh, 1983 after graduating from Harvard Law School. Wow. Uh, became the president of uh, trading card giant Flea in 1993 and became uh, executive vice president of Marvel Entertainment Group that same year. Because Marvel owned Flea, which uh, you know that they were, it was the boom time. Oh yes. And uh, this explains why uh, Marvel used to do their uh, trading cards through a, a company called Imp- Impel, and uh, after they bought Flea, everything came out through Flea, which only makes sense. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> some of those brands were the uh, Marvel masterpieces, and the uh, Flea Flare books. Uh, I mean uh, cards, which were. I, I think if you got arrested in 1994, instead of bringing a carton of cigarettes in, you bring those. You bring the Fleer Flare. Yeah, they're <laughs> you super bring the expensive. Flare flares. Because, I mean, these cards, uh, these cards were actually like an eighth of an inch thick. Wow. Each card. It was ridiculous. And they came in like a pack of cigarettes. It was weird. You know, we, we've hinted at the comic speculator boom, but some, I don't think we've ever said that. It really was a trading card. And, yeah. and I think the trading card side of it, when you get into the sports card, was arguably bigger than the comics. And, you know, all the same stuff that went on with the comics with the holographic foil, and yeah. the, it, that was like tenfold on the, on the cards. There were so many gimmicks on the cards, it was unbelievable. Oh, yeah. So yeah, that, uh, was, uh, that was all part of the, uh, the, the, collector, the collector speculation. Yes. Yeah. It, it, you couldn't you couldn't go wrong in the early '90s. Everything you bought was gonna put your kid through. Concert. Guaranteed to make to make <laughs> you rich. Yeah. You buy that uh, that caught in a Quaker Oats and you're good. <laughs> uh, now, uh, Jemis he rose to prominence during Marvel's bankruptcy years. Uh, he is a fan of controversial, incendiary, and petulant things. <laughs> uh, some of the things he tried to do. Uh, we're going to get into his accolades soon because there were some. He was a uh, you know. He, I don't know how much of it was due to him, but he did facilitate a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was always talking about doing uh, bad girls for fanboys, which was kind of playing into that whole living in your mom's basement type of thing. 
that uh, that we seem to get so much. Which is literally something he said, right? That it was this yeah. is for the guy living in his, his mom's basement. Like geez, I think dude. he might have actually brought that into the into the online fandom lexicon. Yeah. I think uh, he was part of that because they were going to do a uh, an Electra book with uh, I want to say it was Greg Horn did the art or at least he did the covers and they're 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 kind of porny. I mean she's oh, very yeah. listening. Um, he also attempted to use Princess Diana's corpse in an issue of Ecstatics, which uh, they, they got a lot of bad press for, and they had to actually uh, change it out with uh, just some other, like a like some hoity-toity generic person. Unbelievable. Um, yeah. It was, <laughs> I was actually looking for, like I said, I was a zombie. I was looking forward to that. I thought it was pretty funny. Um, and... Uh, also, uh, he lambasted DC, uh, DC Comics as AOL Comics, and uh, he never got through his head that it was, uh, wasn't as funny or as clever as he thought. Um, we're going to get to Joe Quesada in a bit, but we have a quote from him about AOL Comics, because yeah. he was part of this thing, too. He goes, what the F is DC anyway? They're better off calling it AOL Comics. At least people know what AOL is. <laughs> uh, I mean, they have Batman and Superman, and they don't know what to do with them. That's like being a porn star with the biggest dick, and you can't get it up. What the F? <laughs> Gee. And that classy guy, right? Yeah, I mean, it, this was, and he, he was full of, uh, you know, incendiary comments like that online and, 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 and in the he, press. And he was the good cop. I know. He was the public face. <laughs> that was <a> crazy thing. <laughs> these guys really, these guys really were the. Uh, Bad boys, bad boys of Marvel. But, you know, supposedly that quote uh, that you said, uh, rumor is that's the reason that DC, Paul Levitt said that DC would never do another crossover with Marvel while they were in charge. So that's why you've not seen the Avengers and Justice League in the the new millennium, folks, uh, supposedly. Yes. Uh, Now on to the the dark side, supposedly. Joe Quesada. He was born December 1st, 1962 in New York City. He majored in illustration at the School of Visual Arts in Manhattan, graduating with a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree in 1984. Started out as a freelance artist at Valiant Comics in the early 1990s. That was a Jim Shooter comic thing, right, at first? Uh, yeah. Then he got, I think he got canned from there, too. Went to D.C. Yeah, routine. Yeah, well, we'll talk about him for sure someday. Yeah. Uh, went to D.C. where he co-created the new Ray and a soon-to-be Batman, uh, Azriel slash Jean-Paul Valley. He actually did create that uh, outfit. Yep. So um, I guess he maybe gets a dime every time that he shows up when he does. <laughs> created publishing company Event Comics with a pal and partner Jimmy Palmiotti, where they co-created Ash, the fighting, the firefighting superhero. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In 1990, you know, he also used to throw these uh, those Marvel Knights parties. Ever hear about those? No. With Jimmy Palmiotti, he and Jimmy Palmiotti used to throw parties for the industry called Marvel Knights, where they would just get everyone together to get drunk. I think this is really where they consolidated their power because they probably got a lot to blackmail people over. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, I've only, I've only ever seen pictures and heard stories. But this was—they they, were—they were close pals back in the day. Didn't <laughs> didn't last forever. In 1998, the Event Comics team launched the Marvel Knights line of comics, featuring Kevin Smith's run on Daredevil and the start of Christopher Priest, Christopher Priest's Black Panther, and also the Angelic Punisher. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not as good. This Daredevil was all right, though, as I recall. It was a, it was good. It took a, it took forever to come out, but it was it was good when it came out. And the uh, and Priest's Black Panther was awesome. I heard that I, was I've heard that was good. I, I never read that. It's it's available in trade now, I believe. So it's uh, I read I read yeah. the uh, Daredevil in trade anyway. So yeah, I might as well. Mm. 
Might as well get it that way. So, uh, Quesada was promoted to Art Marvel Editor-in-Chief in 2000 after Bob Harris got the boot. And Quesada did a bunch more, obviously, after what we're talking about. We, we will save that for other episodes because Quesada yeah. is currently the Editor-in-Chief, I believe. It's still his title. Or he's he, the Chief Creative Officer. Create, okay, he's the CCO, but he's still yeah, still around. Alonzo so, is... Uh... That's right. Axel Alonso is the, uh, the Editor-in-Chief, the guy and head of it, but... Casada still talks, and he actually still draws for the... He, he drew Howard the Duck of all weird things. Huh, how about that? So. Now we're going to do the old Portmanteau game, and we're going to talk about Quimus. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to talk about the team of Casada uh, and Genis. And they did they did a lot to turn Marvel around after the bankruptcy. I know we're, we're kind of having fun with them here, but this was a very fun time, very exciting time to be a Marvel fan. It, it almost felt like... You know, you were you were running that marathon, <laughs> and uh, you know you see the finish line. Or you're in the desert, and you see the uh, you see the big jug of water. <laughs> it's uh, this was a very fun time to be a Marvel uh, fan, and uh, you know they uh, together they implemented Marvel's no overship policy. Uh, they added newsstand compilation magazines to the publishing st- schedule, so you'd get like uh, you know you get like three issues of Ultimate Spider-Man in a magazine format. Right. So get more eyes on it. Uh, they added the uh, Marvel Max Mature Readers line that we talked about briefly during the Comics Code chat. Mm-hmm. Um, they briefly brought back the Epic line of comics, which we'll talk about a little bit more later on, and we'll probably have a whole thing about that another time. Yeah. Uh, they also, uh, this is important, they launched the Marvel Ultimate line. Uh, they were so hands-on with this line that Bill Jemis actually has co-writer credit on the first few issues of Ultimate Spider-Man. And I mean, here we're so, talking about this story building blocks for the current Marvel movie landscape, really. Pretty much. Uh, yeah, definitely these were the, the movie pictures, almost. Uh, yeah, I mean, literally right down to some of the characters looking exactly the way... <laughs> very oddly prescient to the way some of these characters are depicted mm-hmm. in the Ultimates, but uh, it was it was tremendous at the time. It can't really be downplayed. And the sales juggernaut. It was... Big uh, time. Oh, yeah. Huge. But I, I still I still get tickled thinking that the first issue is by Brian Bendis and Bill Jennings. <laughs> I wonder how he feels about that. <laughs> I wonder. Uh, they uh, they pulled away from the Comics Code, which we talked about during the Comics Code. Yeah. Uh, they went all in on trade paperback publication. Uh, you know, Marvel. They. I, I always equate it to you know you you buy DVDs of the movies you like. You know, mm-hmm. so you have like your shelf of like your favorite movies, and then all of a sudden. TV shows start doing DVD compilations or DVD season sets. That seems to be what like Marvel did. It's like you have all you have. You look on your shelf. You got like Watchmen, V for Vendetta, other things that Alan Moore wrote, and uh, <laughs> then you have like Cable and Deadpool Volume Six. Yeah, you know, just, yeah. They just they really they went they went all in on on trades. This was uh this was a pretty big deal. Yeah, they, they, and they, and they didn't. You know, it used to be like I remember you you've always been able or long been able to get stuff like. Oh, you know, Days of Future Past and yeah. Uh, yeah, Secret Wars issues. was a trade. Yeah. You know, there was there were certain trades, but it was always you know landmark or a very successful uh, runs or or even just crossovers or whatever. Now it's and everything. They were, they were often edited too to uh, to make them stand alone. That's right. So if there were pages with uh, subplots, they were removed. Yep. If there was a cliffhanger going into the next story thread, that was gone. So, uh, and it wasn't were... it wasn't covers and variant covers. Often the covers were removed, you know, just to make yeah. it more reader. They wanted you to read it like a novel. I mean, really, what they were trying to do was trying to try to grab some of that lightning in a bottle of Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen, yeah. which have never been out of print and have always been, you know, uh, DC's evergreen. But this technique that we're talking about, 
all publishers i don't I, I don't think there's a comics publisher i know of including the small guys that they collect everything in trade right am i wrong or i, I don't think you're wrong and yeah. this is uh you know turn of the century is when there was another little boom it was the manga boom you know you had yep. manga on you had manga sections in bookstores I was annoyed back in the day because my comic store was turning into a manga store with that just happened to sell comics too. Yeah. So uh, that's before I kind of fell into it, but uh, it, it's you know they they that was their model it was bookstores, so they knew people were going to bookstores for stuff. So hey, why not? Yeah, let's get let's get uh, in there. Yep. Yeah, let's get some of that game. Um, they uh, they also went a, a a long way to bring in some new and lapsed talent. Uh, they brought in J. Michael Straczynski to fix Spider-Man. Uh, Grant Morrison came in on uh, took over X Men. They changed the title to New X Men. It was a, uh, it, it it was great. <laughs> yeah, I've read this. My a friend let me let me two trades of this years back, and I was like, wow, this is crazy. You know, this is. It was really... so different, but it felt so right. It, it, it's it, kind of like his Doom Patrol. It's so different, but it feels just like it should. For sure. And uh, yeah, I, I think I I own that in singles, in trade, and I have the omnibus. It's, Whoa! <laughs> you gotta have. I gotta have all of it. Um, they brought in uh, Mark Wade and Mike Waringo on the Fantastic Four. Uh, Jemis would eventually try to boot them for uh, a fellow by the name of Roberto Aguirre Sacasa. And uh, it, it was weird because it's like Wade and Ringo gone. And then it, it seemed like one of those times where the internet actually had an impact. Yeah. And, uh, and it wasn't just, you know, it wasn't just, you know, the, a coat of paint. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they uh, they brought them back on, and they shifted Aguirre Sacasa's Fantastic Four into the Marvel Knights line, and it was just called Marvel Knights 4. Huh. And that went on like a year or so, maybe a couple of years. I don't remember, but I, it didn't hold my attention very long. I, I stayed with the Wade run. Uh, they brought in uh, Bruce Jones on Incredible Hulk. They changed the entire... The, the Incredible Hulk changed from like a monster book to a, a fugitive on the run book, and it was a lot of fun. Um, they brought in Mark Miller on uh, Ultimate X-Men, Brian Bendis on Ultimate Spider-Man. Jeff Johns was on the Avengers for over a year. That's right. I mean, I, I'm thinking of that now. It's like, what? <laughs> Unbelievable, you know? Yeah. yeah the mi- Mr. A... DC, if there ever was a Mr. DC of the modern era, that's him, right? That's him. Yeah, it's like, uh, it's like, it's like Dusty Rhodes wrestling for Vince McMahon. Like <laughs> <laughs> uh <laughs> Uh, they brought in uh, Judd Winnick for Exiles, which was a uh, X-Men series that starred Blink. Um, they brought in Greg Rucka on Wolverine. Uh, David Mack did a run on Daredevil. Neil Gaiman came in on a... a, a an, I don't know if it's a continuity or an out-of-continuity thing. It was called 1602. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was okay. I, I've never read that. I've heard about it, and then I know they used it on the recent Secret Wars thing. Wasn't there like yeah, a 1602 World or something like yeah, this? Yeah, yeah. I I couldn't really get into it, but it was uh it, it was I think one of the cubits drew it. It was it was pretty to look at. It was you know it was something. Uh, Gail Simone was there on uh, Deadpool, and and when Deadpool changed to Agent X, she stayed on. Uh, they brought in Warren Ellis, who had done yeah you know, he'd done Excalibur work in the late '90s, but they actually gave him his own line of co- of X Men comics. Here it was called the Counter X, and that consisted of X Force, Generation X, and X Man. Wow. Um, and here's an interesting thing. They sent out an olive branch to Alan Moore. You know, Alan Moore was like the uh, white whale. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Joe Casada actually went to his home to try to pitch him to come to do something, anything. Wow. You know, uh, just draw a line on a piece of paper. We'll publish it. Um, this uh, actually all fell through when Marvel fudged the in- indicia on a trade collection of Alan Moore Captain Britain stories. Wow. 
and this was pretty big news at the time because uh, he, there was supposed to be a creator credit in there, in the Indicia, and it was mysteriously left out. Whoa. And uh, the story was that they were actually sending, like, index cards to all the comic shops and asking them to tape this new Indicia into the oh books. Oh, my God. That's crazy. To appease <laughs> Alan Moore. This is all for yeah. Alan Moore. It's all for him. And uh, we got a couple of quotes from uh, Quesada here. He says, uh, let me assure everyone that the mistake on the Captain Britain trade paperback was not an act of callousness, but, a sim- but rather a simple human error. He goes on to say, what happened with the Captain Marvel copyright notice was a mistake and nothing more. And there's very little I can say except I screwed up. He also says, when I visited Alan, I made him several promises, all of which were kept. Unfortunately, the copyright notice fell through the cracks. Oh, and that was that. As we know, Alan Moore is not someone that would allow himself to be twice scorned. Yes. So. (laughs) Twice shocked. But that was the imagine end. Imagine what we could have had. Oh, gosh. I mean, you know, that really sets your mind thinking, you know, any property would have been fascinating. Um, you know, knowing what he does to resuscitate sure. for, forgotten characters of uh, yesteryear. And what he, maybe he would have even gone into the pre-Lee Kirby stable and pulled out, who knows, Rawhide Kid or some weird thing like that. Whatever, you know, what might have been, but it's, uh, I don't well, think. They, they had plans for Rawhide Kid, and we'll get to that in a little while. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> They always have big ideas. They always have uh, beliefs that the Westerns are going to come back. Um, but, you know, that wasn't it. They did some other notable things in, in Marvel in their tenure together, the uh, Quimus duo. Um, some notable ones are the Enough Said Month. This is a month when all of Marvel's tile- titles went silent with no word balloons, right, I'm assuming? It sucked. Uh, you've, it's really felt like a throwaway month, and Chris remembers hating it is my note here. So that is a... Fact now, folks. <laughs> <laughs> it's in the it's in the weird comics history canon. Uh, this one I didn't read any of these, although I, actually I did read the one that you mentioned here. I, but uh, I do remember this happening uh, all, really all over comics too. When this manga explosion happened, people really yeah. uh, weren't sure how to react. But a lot of interest, interesting things happened in uh, mainstream comics at the time. It was called the Marvel Tsunami. And uh, some new titles to say it's sort of a manga influence. Probably the most popular one, the one I know of, is Brian K. Vaughn and Adrian Alfona's Runaways. Uh, yeah. Really worth reading. Uh, good, good series. Oh, yeah. And uh, oh, here's another one, the Marvel Mangaverse. This was an awful fifth-week event that turned into a semi-regular series of miniseries. Included a Punisher who was a dominatrix. Uh, what Get else? it? Get it? Oh, very good. Punishing. Very punishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was uh, <laughs> uh, stupid, sexy Namor, as yes, Chris has called it. <laughs> this is Bill Jemis himself wrote with uh, Salvador La Roca on art, the story of young Namor. And they also removed the cover dates from the covers to hide the fact that several <laughs> books were constantly missing and running late. Uh, that's a rumor, but I really, yeah. I do remember that also. There was a big, you know, it's, uh, you, you see sometimes people ask, um, uh, Brevort, you know, why don't you ever, you know, if you're going to renumber, why don't you keep the old number? That way people collecting, you know, long runs can keep keep it uh, track. And he says, oh, we tried that years ago, but it didn't work out. We kept messing it up. <laughs> we'll get into that in a little while. Yeah, I know. But my answer is don't mess it up. But this is this is part of it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you, you mm-hmm. tried it and then you, you you screwed it up. So you tried to abandon it, the date totally. You know, like, come on, yes. that's, not, that's not the answer. But the dates did still appear on the inside, uh, the Indicia. 
on yeah, the inside front cover. You can see it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you have to really be dedicated to proving them late. Well, it's like it's <laughs> like the same thing with collecting records. You know what I mean? You have to read the fine print sometimes to know yep. what you know what year it came out or whatever. Now we mentioned that a creator was involved with in this, and uh, we're going to meet him now. It's uh, Peter David. Uh, Peter Allen David. He was born September 23rd, 1956 in Fort Meade, Maryland. He attended NYU and graduated with a Bachelor of Arts degree in journalism. He worked in Marvel's sales department under a woman by the name of Carol Kalish, who we will be discussing deeper when we get to our uh, direct market uh, uh, series. For sure. Um, now, he unsuccessfully tried submitting stories for a few things, including Moon Knight, to uh, editor uh, Denny O'Neill. And, you know, Denny decided against it. But uh, And I'm editorializing here, but I, I think that might be more due to the uh, reluctance to kind of, quote-unquote, cross the streams between creative and the office. Yeah. Rather than an indictment on his writing. I, I actually wouldn't be surprised if he didn't even read the submission. Uh, because I think things were a little bit different. I, I, I don't even know if they might still be that way, where they don't want the office guys in the bullpen. Well, you know, it, it came back to being that way. That was actually, I believe that's one of the things Harris implemented when he took over, was to say no more of this freelancing your own, you yeah. know, working here and freelancing, because it just creates a conflict of interest, and you guys are uh, being able, you know, you're supposed to be working here for us and whatever. But in, in the time you're talking about, when Denny O'Neill was editor at Marvel, which was like very early 80s, I think, right, or... I think this was mid-80s. Mid-80s, something like that. Yeah. Um, it wasn't like that. And it, it was never like that at D.C. You couldn't... Yeah. Couldn't be. Of course, some some creators, some, some editors can do whatever they want, but that's <laughs> that's a whole other story, you know? Certainly. Now, he did eventually break through, obviously, into the creative side of Marvel and, and D.C., and, and we're going to touch on some of these in brief because I think uh, I think Peter David has an episode in him, in and of himself. For sure. Um uh, he, I wrote a story called The Death of Gene DeWolf that appeared in Spectacular Spider-Man number 107 to 110 that ran from October 85 to January 86. Awesome story. I don't know if you've ever... Have you ever read The I Death never, of Gene DeWolf? No. Uh, it's, I, I definitely recommend it. It's, uh, it's one of my very favorite Spider-Man stories. Um, he also... I think he spent a little bit of time writing The Incredible Hulk. Maybe, yeah. This, Maybe 12 years. This is where I know him... Uh... <laughs> Best when I think yes. about him, I think about this this run right here. And he's uh, I'm gonna go through his run here because he, uh, I think he did a couple of issues before his quote on you know his actual run started. Right. But we'll give uh, we'll say issues 331 to 466 plus annuals. Amazing. Which is May of 87 to July of 98, and uh, he he was it was a mostly uninterrupted run. I think he missed an issue or two. But it wasn't due to lateness or anything. It was actually he just didn't want to write the story they wanted him to tell. Yeah. yeah so I think one of them had to do with uh, capital punishment. All right. And uh, I think another one, I want to say it was an abortion story, but they changed his ending. Hmm. So he, he took himself out of it. Took his name off it. Yeah. Well, you know, I, uh, Hulk is someone I could never say it would be my favorite character. Uh, I've read other, you know, issues here and there and some short runs on Hulk, but this one is definitely worth seeking out. It really is. Absolutely. It's really good. And it's in it's in, it's been collected in the uh, the Marvel Visionaries. The Visionaries, yeah. Definitely worth checking out if you if you really want a uh, a treat, you can get the uh, uh, it's almost like a zero the volume to Peter David's where it's actually the John Byrne run. Oh it's yeah. The six issues 
that Byrne wrote was collected in the Visionaries. That so sets, sets it up for uh, yeah, his... You can see the progression. <laughs> it's very interesting. Hmm. Um, he also wrote X-Factor. He wrote uh, X-Factor a couple of times. Um, but the one we'll talk about now is the first time. It was uh, issues number 70 to 89, the September 91 to April of 93. Uh, he, had, he wrote several issues with a, an artist by the name of Joe Casada. Hey. Yes, including a friggin' awesome issue where the members of the team visit Doc Sampson for psychoanalysis. Oh, yeah. It was right after uh, the Executioner song uh, crossover. And they all, like, just, it's like they all just went in and they, they it was all individual. And uh, they all know, they, unburdened themselves. Basically. And you find out that, like, Polaris kind of has some body dysmorphia. You find out that, uh, like, Quicksilver is such a dick because. In his head, everybody's going so slow. Oh, it's not that okay. he goes fast, but everybody else goes slow, and that's why he's such a jerk. Oh, that's cool. So it's a, it was a very great, it was a great issue, one of the best. Um, now this book was plagued by X family crossovers that inf- interrupted the flow of the narrative. There was one issue of X Factor that featured nobody on the team. Wow, it weird. Featured, it featured Cable, Wolverine, and Bishop. What? <laughs> I think it was X Factor number eighty-five. Um, and it was right in the middle of that execution of song uh, 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 crossover. Uh, he was about to explore an abortion story um, where the mutant gene could be determined in utero where the parent could decide to abort a mutant child. Mm. And uh, that got axed then. But when he did, when he did return to X-Factor in the uh, 2000s and uh, ran a, a similar story then. Well, that's good. I'm yeah. glad, glad he returned to that. He also did a run on Aquaman over at DC. This is issues 0 to 46, plus annuals, August 1994, July 1998. And this is the well-known long-haired, bearded, one-handed take, uh, the hook for a hand, or the spear hook for a hand yeah. uh, on the character. He did a run on Supergirl. This is, another one. this is the other one that I know really from uh, Peter David. He did issues 1 to 80 and issue 1 million as part of DC's one year 1 million Event, mm-hmm. I guess it was, right? Like, uh, DC yeah. 1 million, yeah. yeah. The Grant Morrison thing. Yep, yeah, which was, uh, you know, everybody 1 million years in the future. This was September 1996 uh, to May 2003. This was Linda Davers' Fallen Angel take. Linda Danvers, sorry. Mm. The uh, Fallen Angel take. We actually talked about this on an episode of uh, Cosmic Treadmill, didn't we? we did. A little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote Young Justice, issues 1 to 55, and the 1 million issue. This was September... 1998 to May 2003. Uh, it's just a bad month. It seemed like everything for him ended in May 2003. The poor guy. Just a DC work got yanked out from under him. Um, and junior high is to young justice as high school is to teen titans. That's what the young justice was about. Uh, I've never read that myself, but I have seen the cartoon, which I don't think actually has a lot to do with it. Has nothing to do with nope, it. Nope, but anyway. Well, very little. That's, uh, you know, who knows. And he created the Nickelodeon show, TV show Space Cases with Send Him to the Cornfield Boy, Billy Mummy, who he was also the kid on uh, Lost in Space. Yep. Um, um, has written many prose novels, including some based on Star Trek. So uh, Peter David has a good pedigree. Now, for the actual contest between these three gentlemen, again, that's uh, Bill Jemis, Joe Casada, and Peter David, they come up with the you decide concept, the letter U decide concept. That's a friendly competition between Jemis, Casada, and David to see who could move the most issues of the particular comic. This is started through an open letter to Jemis and Casada written by David, 
which was published in his But I Digress column for Comics Buyer's Guide, number 1480, March 29th, 2002. This is in regard to the price hike on his sales-starved but critically acclaimed Captain Marvel book from 250 to 275. Just a quarter. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that is a, that is a big hype. But I'm sitting here thinking a comic for 275. It's almost like they're giving it away these it's days. A dream come true. <laughs> <laughs> now the uh, the open letter was called the Captain Marvel Price Challenge, and this is where he publicly calls out Jemison Casada for raising the price on his already struggling Captain Marvel comic. Along with a couple of other notable water treaders, uh, Priest's Black Panther and uh, Tom DeFalco's uh, MC2 darling, Spider-Girl. That was that MC2 line where it was kind of the next generation that uh, Spider-Girl was the only thing that uh, almost survived or or, treaded water, hung on, didn't sink. Um, now, the price hike was announced on February 19th, 2002, by J- Bill Jemis, who referred to the three titles as selling DC numbers. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, little. Very just to little. get a jab in there. You know, yeah. why not? We could use this to jab DC. Can you, can you imagine that just, like, having a press release? It's like, yeah. sorry, these books sell like our competition. We are, like, we're as lame as DC Comics now. Uh, now, now discounting uh, DC just having wrapped up Stan Lee's Just Imagine series, which maybe we'll get to eventually. Those were all priced at five ninety five, and they sold pretty decently, as well as being in the midst of Frank Miller's DK two. That's the Dark Knight Strikes Again. That those were priced at like eight bucks. Yeah, each. I remember that. Uh, and so outside of that, Marvel was definitely outselling DC. It, it, that would go on for a little while until uh, until Hush hits later on in the year. But that's that's not for today. Um, now he did the, he did this publicly because you know we mentioned that these guys were kind of out there. They were you know bad boys. They were annoying everybody yeah uh, so he did this publicly kind of to play their own game you know uh they were letting everything hang out in public so he figures why not why not me too um he d- david cites uh joe Quesada public publicly challenging todd mcfarland to do some marvel work that was another one of them olive branches but it wasn't nearly as polite yeah it doesn't sound like he went to his house to because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> david suggests that you know todd might have been a little bit more responsive to a phone call or an email or maybe a visit right um because if you if you've ever seen this public challenge Quesada calls him toddy boy uh. about a half I mean, come on. It's like, come on, toddy boy. Yeah. Like, don't, don't be a dick. Um, I, I mean, at know. this at this time, McFarlane's already a millionaire. You know what I mean? Tyler, then we're not talking he, about. He's, s- he's buying. He's already bought the baseballs at this point. Yeah. You know, he just, doesn't care. This is this is not somebody you can do who's like desperate to work for Marvel anyway. Exactly. Um, now, Pedro, he was a, Peter David was upset that he was not informed of the price hike. He found out at the same time as the readers. He says, "Thanks for the heads up on that, guys." <laughs> Uh, now, he gave three reasons why uh, people never bought Captain Marvel. First one, no intrinsic interest in it. I could see that. Sure. Number two, the Titanic $2.50 price. Because at the time, most of Marvel's books were only two and a quarter. Wow. Which, you know, it's, you couldn't imagine that today. Uh, and then three is a quote. He says, why bother getting attached to a title when Marvel is going to cancel it anyway? If the book does wind up hanging around for a few years, Marvel collect it and trade paperbacks, and I'll buy those. Mm, uh, sounds like <laughs> someone named Reggie. <laughs> <laughs> he goes on. He goes, "Will anybody sample the book? Good Lord, no! If they weren't buying it two at if they weren't buying it at two fifty, they sh- they're sure as hell not going to start at two seventy five. And he continues, "You've stitched the scarlet sea of cancellation." <laughs> 
you're virtually guaranteed a drop in overall readership from people who will not want to pay the increased price and also virtually ensured no new fans will pick it up because they consider the ter title terminal or simply not worth the inflated cover price. And this was a common practice at Marvel, maybe DC, maybe elsewhere, that they hiked the price up on these flagging titles to try to buy some time. And the, you know Pete's, Peter's point is well taken. Fans often saw right through this. Oh, yeah. And then they divested from the titles. I mean, we're seeing that now with Rebirth. We oh. have those new 52 titles still coming out, and it's like, is anybody buying them? No, they don't give a crap. Bes besides us? <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. Especially, especially when you're, you know, heading into or dealing with a reboot or whatever it is sure. that you want to call it in this case. Uh, yeah, people... people are quick to abandon titles, you know, for all of the Marvel zombies and the comic book, uh, you know, obsessive compulsive types that are basically the industry seems to count on yeah. to keep themselves afloat. Completions, yeah. um, you know, there there are definitely a lot of people that they, you know, and I'm one of those people too. I'll walk away from a comic in a minute. You know, it really doesn't take a lot for me to be like, ah, that's not worth my time because there's there's a lot of there's a lot to go around out there. But uh, so you know, they, they don't. They don't seem to. They they seem to just squeeze the extra money or whatever they can out of the. Well, they can. Yeah. The, exactly the collectors, but uh, it's uh, probably not the best long term business plan. But I never took business, so what do I know? No. Um, Peter da uh, Peter David also calls out Marvel for not promoting the book. Uh, they ran a special slashback program, lowering the prices on certain titles from two twenty five to one ninety nine, including comparable sales hits, Avengers and the Incredible Hulk. And Peter David wrote a tailored Captain Marvel story specifically to take advantage of this, uh, only to find out that his series was not even going to take part in the program. It was, uh, it was he was planned for issue 19, and that shipped at two dollars and fifty cents. He wrote a story that tied in characters from the 2099 and future imperfect universes. Marvel did not advertise it or even mention it in the solicitation. Which, uh, you know, might have been something. I remember 2099 was pretty popular, uh, still is sort of a popular. And Future Imperfect was the uh, Peter David and George Perez uh, two part they did uh, maybe, in the mid 90s. Maybe they, uh, maybe they had an axe to grind or something here. <laughs> I wonder. Mm. Uh, it suggests raising the prices 15 cents on high selling books to counterbalance the flagging series. Which it does not sound like a great idea because Marvel would take that ball and run with it in the years that followed out of fear that they were leaving money on the table, which actually is exactly where they are right now. Yes. <laughs> uh, that is to say, low sellers would be priced at two ninety nine, while the big sellers would get the joint at three ninety nine and above price point. That's precisely what's happening. You were just you just listed their uh, economic plan right there. That's it. So it says that the twenty five cent price hike would only raise the profitability of the book by a couple thousand dollars a month. Which was probably fine with Marvel. They, you know, it's going to be canceled anyway. If they can squeeze another three, four grand, why not? That's you why know, not? any money is uh, good money. Uh, so David, David uh, offered that if Marvel does not raise the price to write the book at a ninety-five cents per page rate, twenty dollars and ninety-nine cents per issue. Get it? Uh, very, very funny. Very good. <laughs> yeah, and that would tie right into his twenty-nine, twenty ninety-nine books. I'm sure. Uh, and that would do so until Captain Marvel breaks into the Diamond Top 50 or breaks the 25,000 issues sold barrier. Um, Peter David initially wanted to write for free, but that would somehow affect the book's work for higher status, so he couldn't legally do that. And luckily for him, Marvel didn't take him up on that offer. Instead, we got the You Decide stunt that we're going to be describing. 
Uh, Quesada's reply to the open letter pointed out, perhaps rightly, and that's at least worth arguing, that Captain Marvel was written in too much of an old-school, continuity-heavy way that was insular to, too insular to bring in new readers, which begs the question, why was Marvel publishing it? Quesada yep. can, can John Byrne's X-Men The Hidden Years for similar reasons almost right out the gate. And it really does, you know, going through all this, it almost seems like maybe they had a personal problem with Peter David, but... It, it all, it, it's, there's just so many signs. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, I mean, for all we know, Peter David could be, you know, a very unpleasant person. I mean, I, we don't know. Possible. Yeah. I have no, I have no idea, but, you know, I think that they couldn't deny the, uh, then again, they're offering a olive branch to Alan Moore. You got to know that this guy's not a uh, cherry to work with all the time, so. This is true. Who knows? Now, Kassad uh, is not the only one who replied, uh, not to be outdone, Bill Jemis hopped in and he pitched the You Decide stunt. Uh, now, we, uh, we have, a, you know, Joe Quesada's baby at the time was the ultimate line, and, and rightfully so, because it was a rousing success. Um, so he hired his buddy and pal of Howard Stern, probably because he was a pal of Howard Stern, <laughs> uh, Ron Zimmerman, to write his own ultimate title, which is basically, what if Batman and Robin lived in the ultimate universe? Uh, Peter David, he, like we said, he was writing Captain Marvel. This is volume three. And this features Janice Vell, who is uh, Captain Marvel Marvel's son, who uh, first appeared in, an, I want to say it's an annual A Silver Surfer that uh, came out during, like, Marvel's version of Bloodlines. Okay. <laughs> like, where every annual had a new character right, in yeah. the trading card. Um, and I think that was, like, 1993. Um, now they it, was were, right, it was right in the same year, as I remember. It was yeah, almost it was the same like, year. Was... Same summer. And this featured, like I said, Janice Bell and Rick Jones, who was a you know incredible Hulk character, and they sort of inhabited the same space. They would clang armbands to switch positions in the real world in the negative zone, just as Marvel and Rick Jones had done during the 70s. Now this series ran for 35 issues plus a Wizard Magazine exclusive number zero. Remember those? Oh yeah. <laughs> From uh, November 1999 through November 2002. Now the final issue, the, the Ultimate Line had a very very uh, unique, very uh, identifiable trade dress. Yeah. There's two bars down. Either, it was a bar down either side. Uh, it was just a different color bar. And uh, so they, the last issue of uh, Captain Marvel came out with that branding and uh, kind of a uh, you know, play on words that says the ultimate Captain Marvel because it was the last one. And uh, Bill Jemis would write something that almost defies explanation, but we will get to that after our break. That's right. We're going to take a quick break, and we're going to actually talk about the comics that were part of the You Decide stunt, and we're going to let you decide whether <laughs> they are worth talking about. Uh, the only, of course, the, I know the weird one only, the weirdest one <laughs> of the three, and that's the one I'll be uh, talking about myself. But we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back right after this. Hey everybody, I'm Alex Albin. And I'm Lucas Siegel. And we are coming to you from Newsarama.com Skybox here at New York Comic Con. And we are very pleased to have in the studio with us Joe Casado. Welcome. Hey How are you? Uh, let's talk about uh, price point a little bit. That's mm -hmm. been a huge discussion here right. at the con. Marvel's made their announcement, DC's made their announcement. W what's your take on all of it? You know, the, 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 our, our take on it, my take on it, is that, that 
well, you know, I, I have nothing to do with the pricing right. uh, decisions here. Uh, but in discussing with the guys at Marvel, I think both companies started to start to feel that that there 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 might be a place where we can we can lower some prices on some books. Um, you know, we're we're going to keep our page counts the same, and everybody's got a different plan. I'm, I'm not judging anybody's plan here, except for our own. Uh, what I do know is that 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 the the, the digital comics uh, are enabling us to to look at pricing and maybe lower pricing on some books. Um, and, uh, and and you're going to start seeing probably more and more of that. But at the end of the day, we also have to be very very careful because we have to co- we have to cognizant of our retailers as well. Because I think there there's a there's a sweet spot somewhere in there where uh, if you if you lower prices too much across the board, you may actually be hurting retailers somewhere down the road. I don't know what that magic sweet spot is. That's really for our marketing guys. But I know that David Gabriel, you know, one of the retailer, mm-hmm. I guess panels here. I think the announcements almost happened simultaneously yeah. or like I think hours it wasn't we didn't really make an announcement. It was just sort of like David was talking at at a at a, at a panel for retailers, I believe. Uh, and then DC put out a press release. Um, but it's sort of the same thing that happened when when DC put out a press release about, you know, we're the first company to do digital initiatives when we were already Planning to do digital initiatives anyway. They were already they're already in the works. So uh, we just haven't put any press releases out about that stuff. Uh, but it's something that we're very very cognizant of. Uh, you know, we, we, we know it's a, it's a rough economy out there, and you know we you know fans want to get their books, and some things might be pricing them you know out of uh, out of contention for some of these books. But we also have to be very very careful with the pricing of the the books and the digital comics because we don't want to hurt. Are retailers, and that's right. really the, the 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 ultimate goal here. Uh, but if you guys have ever spoken to David Gabriel, you probably should interview him one day. He's a fascinating guy um, and a very very smart guy. He meets with retailers all the time on this sort of stuff. Right. So uh, he works out these formulas and he does it with the consultation of retailers. Uh, and he's very good at it. He's sold a lot of books for us in the in the last <laughs> few years. Welcome back. Yeah. Okay. We left off talking about uh, the three books that the gentleman would write. Now we're actually going to talk about those books. Mm-hmm. Um, Peter David, he started uh, Captain Marvel Volume 4. Uh, he wrote it with uh, art by Chris Cross. And uh, I, I always enjoyed his art. It was almost like uh, like a graffiti style. Almost. It was, yeah. Now this ran 25 issues from November 2002 to September 2004. Uh, they ran the... Uh, and now this is where it gets kind of confusing. They ran Volume 3's legacy numbering alongside the new volume four numbering. So what I'm trying to say is the issue that came out in November of 2002 showed an issue number one, and then a little off to the side had a like a grayed out number 36, as if it was continuing the previous volume. Uh, Marvel did this a lot back then, especially after, like we talked about Heroes Reborn a bit earlier, and when Heroes Return happened, they restarted the books again, which mm-hmm. is Marvel. And... Uh, they, uh, when, when Joe Quesada came in, he wanted to bring back the legacy numbering, but he also didn't want to lose the new numbering. So you'd buy an issue of Iron Man that was number 45 and 400, you know, <laughs> so, was, uh, so they could, you know, they can eat their cake and have it too. Yeah. Um, I remember liking it, but I'm kind of a legacy numbering nut. <laughs> like, uh, like Action Comics going back to its legacy numbering was a really big deal to me when sure. I it probably shouldn't have been. But uh, that's just kind of the, the way I've always been. And uh, I, I remember thinking that this series lost something from, the, uh, from Volume 3. Because Volume 3 was a... There was a lot of comedy in there. And um, a lot of it was... Uh, you know, you had Rick Jones who was going... He was either going... I think he was married to uh, Marlo Chandler. They were both uh, 
they were both featured in the Incredible Hulk comic during Peter David's run, so he was kind of taking his character, not his characters, but characters he had worked with, mm-hmm. and uh, and I think he created Marlowe, and uh, had them in this new paradigm, you know, and uh, it was uh, humorous, it was funny, uh, where this new book was more serious, and I, I didn't glom onto it the way I did the first, but I, mm. I, I do have the entire thing because that's just what I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, luckily, there was some comedy going on in another book, although it was largely unintentional comedy. This was <laughs> Marvel <laughs> by uh, Bill Jemis and art by M.D. Bright. This is the series that I read after the fact because people told me it was so uh, insane that I had to see it. And I even I even begged off. I was like, ah, whatever, I don't care. Finally, I picked it up for very cheaply, which you can too, fair listener. It's not very hard to find nor get these. Probably about 50 cents an issue if you... Quarter bin, 50 cent bin. Definitely. If anyone's trying to charge a buck a piece for them, you know, walk out. It, it's Punch ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, this ran for seven issues from November 2002 to 2003, although it was a funny seventh issue, as we'll mention. Only the first six had a story. Issue seven was just a job application for Marvel's soon-to-be-relaunched and ill-fated epic line of comics. Someday, Will, we're going to talk about both epic lines uh, for sure. I remember the one in the uh, 80s, late 70s. Well, I remember from the 80s, more very early 80s, I remembered it as being booby comics. Yeah, but there uh, were like three incarnated. There was like the Epic Illustrated, which was the magazine. Yeah. And then it was the self. Then there was like this is the the creator own. The creator own stuff. Yeah. Then whatever the hell this was going to be, and I, I actually was just I before we recorded, I, I read through issue seven of Marvel. Oh yeah. And the, the, it's it's just crammed with stuff. But I that's all going. We're going to save that for the Epic episode whenever it happens. <laughs> yeah. The, but we'll, it's we'll, uh, it's wild. It it's the whole thing is really wild. Uh, it really is a shockingly bad book. I mean, it's, it, it defies <laughs> all of your ex, ex, uh, expectations for what a bad book can be. It, it really is the, uh, what, do we, what did I call it? The, uh, uh, not the Manos, Hands Manos, of Fate. Uh, the Room. The Room. If you ever saw Tommy the movie Wiseau. The Room um, by Tommy Wiseau, exactly. It's, it's one of these things where you're just like, you, know, you might think to yourself, ah, I've read plenty of bad comic books. How bad could it be? Oh, God, it just goes beyond anything you, have you, no can, idea. you can imagine. It's a not-so-subtle attempt at satire, poking fun at the comics industry, and especially DC. Um, but it's so much, so much more than that. Uh, it mocks Republicans. It also has this uh, weird take on evolution and religion that is just... Impossible. At one time, I did want to try to do an issue by issue breakdown, but then I realized that that was a total folly. We would be yeah. we would be here for ten hours, and still we would have gotten nowhere. No, so, we would have we would have solved like some quantum physics uh, equation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Instead of, uh, actually, decoding this book, and we would never get to uh, finish our thing about you decide. We would just end up no. spiraling out. But uh, you know, just to say a few quick words about it. Um, this guy in the comic, they took shots at DC Comics by referring the, to them as AOL Comics. This is something, as we you know, we mentioned that Jemison Casada did in interviews also, which is really like, uh, you know, basically what you're saying is, you know, uh, we know the name of your parent company. You know what I mean? Ha ha. Yeah. You know, like, but is that a big? I mean, Marvel at this time wasn't owned by Disney, but they weren't exactly, you know, the in- independent comics on the block. So it was always it's always seemed very weirdly petty and uh you know when you think back to when you think about where AOL is now I guess it's probably funnier now than it was then. Yeah. 
there was a Superman stand-in named Cal AOL Turner. <laughs> he was the son of Ted Turner and Jane Fonda. And by the way, born in the year 5002. Why mm-hmm. were Ted Turner and Jane Fonda still alive? We don't know. Um, just more about, you know, the reason that all this AOL stuff came in on January 11, 2001, uh, America Online, AOL, and DC's parent company, Time Warner, merged. Uh, this is viewed as one of the biggest merger acquisition disasters of all time. It was really because of the dot-com bubble, and AOL seemed to be have a limitless potential. Uh, at that time, they were pretty much the only interface with the Internet, right? Uh, they were they were what you thought of. Pretty much, I, they, most people like got the on next to tissue thing. It was, um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you use there, use that, use Netscape and web crawler, and that was about all there was uh, yeah. very early on. Um, CompuServe. <laughs> pe- people didn't really. Prodigy was another one. I'm actually yeah, remembering these old ones, but uh, I don't think people really understood. It, it's it's so funny this time in in the dot com internet landscape. People trying to understand what it is that that they're that they're investing in, you know, like yeah, we know that this can make money. We're not sure how, but we have to, you know, we want to get on board as soon as we can. Um, and this was this was was a huge merger at the time. Didn't work out. I yeah. believe that they're not. I believe that they have unmerged since or something. You know, there's some sort I'm of. I'm not different... even sure if AOL is. Uh... Yeah, they're. I'm not even sure what they are. They're I'm out sure they're there. Still around. Every now and again, I still see an American Online. Uh, Email address, so they have to be something, right? I don't know what the hell. From anybody besides a grandmother? I, I there's actually somebody I work with, <laughs> believe it or not. I know, I know. Usually, it's uh, I, I got my parents off of AOL like seven years ago. Finally, so uh, there's a lot of Smallville imagery in this, and it was just started. I think I think Smallville started the year before this, the the September yeah. before that this came out, and it was pretty popular. But it was like. Well, what is the point? Why are we making fun of it? I don't understand. <laughs> like, are you mad at it? Uh, oh, yeah, you, you actually worked sm- good to get the date. Smallville first aired October 16, 2001 on the WB, and it ran for 10 seasons. It, it was, it did become hugely popular. Oh, yeah. Uh, I remember it didn't start super popular, but it kind of built up over time, and uh, people people loved it. But again, like, why? I don't, the, the joke, I don't understand the joke, you know, Uh it was really yeah. strange. So I mean, it's it's not like making fun of the kid for having pimples. It's making fun of him for having perfect teeth. Essentially, <laughs> so yeah, it just doesn't make sense. Uh, the first issue is, I guess, it's I guess that's supposed to be Cal AOL on the cover. Uh, yeah, with an M on his chest, and it's supposed to mock this this uh, Smallville promo picture. The Smallville ad, yeah. But it uh, it just the, it, these are jokes that didn't land, and then you could say that for the whole series that there are a lot of jokes. You know, it's sort of like the Archie Comics comic strip. You ever read that in the, in the newspaper? Oh, it's awful. When you read it, that, it, but it's like every time you read it's that... A, you, it's the same panels with different words. You're like, <laughs> I, I know there a joke happened here. <laughs> I just don't know what it was. You know, I just don't know what was what what was the where was I supposed to laugh? And that's sort it's of the like way it is like throughout a this whole. Morrison comic. Sometimes, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know this is smart. I just can't figure it out. You know. But I'm gonna nod anyway. Oh yeah. Oh, I understand every bit of it. Yeah, sure. Um, so anyway, that that's that was my take on a lot of this. Uh, it's really a time travel story. Uh, Cal AOL goes. He goes from the future to the present and eventually into the distant past uh there's a whole like whole thing about evolution and this wolverine turning into wolverine right now isn't that what happens in the in the book well they they tried to tie the uh the wildly popular origin series that's right the origin branding on the last two story issues 
to try to, I think it was just trying to jumpstart sales. Which is so, you know what I mean? Like, by that time, you've already committed to this bizarre freaking story where they're hanging out yeah. with a guy named Jack, who's obviously an allegory for God, but he's not calling him God. And uh, it's just so, I really I really implore everyone to go read it, because it's so cheap to get and so yeah. unique in the world of comics, going back to, you know, the very first ones. I, there's not many like this. Uh, I, I just want to say, so just like to give you an example, though, of how off-base this comic is. On the very first page of the first issue, and they do this for not all the issues, but the first two at least, there's an explanation of the in-jokes contained within the book. <laughs> uh, you know, if you have to explain the jokes, and it's the first page, like that's the yeah. recap page. It's a, the first page is a page of text. That they don't that... work. Then they are actually failures as jokes. They don't. They should not need to be explained. So like, uh, hey, by the way, when we mentioned Paul Levitz, this is who Paul Levitz is. Like, I mean, what? I mean, it's so weird because so so. I mean, this he posited this as he thought this was going to win, right? Yeah. Theoretically, yeah. right? I don't understand. <laughs> anyway, it did has to be seen to believed, everybody. Yes, it's you, you wouldn't you wouldn't believe it until you saw it. Yeah. Um, now, Joe Casada's side, uh, Ultimate Adventures. This was written by Ron Zimmerman with art by Duncan Figueroa. Uh, Joe Casada served as the editor. Uh, this ran from six issues, ran six issues from November 2002 to September 2003. Mm. So there be there be some delays here. Maybe. <laughs> now this is basically Batman and Robin in, in the Ultimate Marvel Universe. Uh, Casada quote here. He says, uh, "Hawk Owl and Zippy, who was later named Woody, the characters in UA are the first Ultimate Marvel characters to be introduced without analogs in the regular Marvel Universe." <laughs> <laughs> but there were analogs in the DC or AOL universe. Perhaps. Yeah, jeez, like, come on! You know, what, a, what a funny uh, thing to say. Do you think was Zippy's name changed because of Zippy the Pinhead? Do you know? Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> they they did have a striking uh, similarity. Uh, <laughs> no, they didn't. Um, we mentioned Ron Zimmerman. Let's go a little bit deeper here. He is a comedian and writer, and uh, he was born sometime somewhere. Um, he played Doc on Seventh Heaven, and he wrote for the TV show Charles in Charge. Mm. He was a pal of Howard Stern. He tried out for Jackie Martling's spot when uh, Jackie left the show in August 2001. Uh, the Jackie chair eventually wound up going to Artie Lang. Uh, now, in addition to writing Ultimate Adventures, he wrote the Max miniseries Rawhide Kid Slap Leather mm. that had the not-so-well-received new gay take on the character. He also wrote Get Craven which was the also not so well received trust fund baby take on the son of Craven, Aloysia Craven, from the Spider-Man books. Neither of them were very good. Now I think yeah. I, I think I've heard of this rawhide kid. Isn't it like so yeah. over the top? It's like offensive to everyone. You, you know, yeah, it's not championing anything. It's it's <laughs> it's really just. I mean, it's like Rawhide Kid is like a mincing guy talking about like putting on makeup, and you know what I mean. It's it's ridiculous, as I recall. Maybe I, I never read it, but I think I've I've only heard of it, so I shouldn't. Be, uh, I yapping. got all of it, but I don't think I made it past reading the first issue. Wow, it was just it, it was just not. It didn't do anybody any service. It just I don't know why they. It seemed to be just one of those things to to outrage people. Or yeah, whatever. Now, uh, Zimmerman would go on to become one of the more reviled character creators of this era. And, uh, you know, we're talking set in the same breath as Chuck <laughs> Austin and even Bill the Writer Jemis himself. Um, at some point in 2002, Zimmerman was banned from a Spider-Man message board for posting some not-so-nice things in response to some negative reviews of his Spider-Man work, which was that Get Craven. And I think he 
I think he also did like a uh, like an insert that had Spider-Man teaming up with Jay Leno, which was well, I think it was like <laughs> a motorcycle. Ad. It was Why? awful. Um, now he says, and we quote. For the first time ever, that's right, Aunt May is nude. He's talking about his next story. Uh, then, I bring, then I bring back Uncle Ben, only he's gay, and he's sleeping with Scott Bayo or Namor. I can't decide which. So he's, he's showing his Charles and Charles roots there. Yeah. Uh, and then he says, uh, if you love my writing, wait till you see my drawing. I gave Spidey a tiny little penis, and he's not circumcised. <laughs> what a nice guy. Really, really Maybe. reaching out to the fans here. I love that. It's nice. <laughs> now, this uh, became so heated that Joe Casada needed to come in and do damage control. Imagine the editor-in-chief of Marvel or DC going to just some comic forum. Yeah. To protect their... I mean, we have Dan Slott call, telling people to kill themselves now, and nobody does it. I know. No one does a thing. Well, now, 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 now it's all, you know, the statements of the creator are his own, blah, blah, blah. Legally, they divest themselves, yeah. And uh, so he comes in, and he states that Zimmerman had... He has the same background as Kevin Smith. And, and you know, we all love him, right? Sure. <laughs> but he doesn't have the same cult of personality to defend him or his work. Casada is quoted as saying, What I find incredibly sad is that Ron is one of you guys. His love of comics is greater than anything he's ever done for TV or the movies. He has never been happier than when he's writing comic books. And now he's going to really ingratiate himself to the fans. Here he goes... When Kevin Smith started, he got the same kind of treatment from fans on the net. It was just hard, cold jealousy, and it was mostly from writer wannabes. Oh, there's that old ingratiating Casada we know and love. a nice deflection, yeah. <laughs> uh, Casada said that writer Ron Zimmerman will be concentrating on the human element that's been the cornerstone of the ultimate Marvel successes so far. This would be in the ultimate uh, uh, book he was writing, right? The Ultimate Adventures. Yeah, ultimate Adventures. The ultimate stories work best when it's 22 pages of Peter Parker laying across his bed talking to Mary Jane. And that's what this is as well. Ultimate Adventures is destined for trade paperback and probably a bright future as part of their Marvel publishing lineup. Those were quotes from uh, Joe Quesada. This was released in trade May 18, 2005 as Ultimate Adventures, colon, one tin soldier. Two years later. Yeah, it's exactly two years later. This is all part of their bright future. Uh, outside of a mention in the August 2005 official handbook of the Marvel Universe, Volume 4, Number 16, and a throwaway comic, comment in an issue of Ultimates, these characters have not been seen since. Another quote from Casada: my gut really tells me that when it all is said and done, I think Ultimate Adventures Number 1 is going to be one of those incredibly collectible issues. When you take away all of the cover gimmicks, I think Ultimate Adventures will be the ultimate winner. Pardon the pun. And a broken clock is wrong 1,438 times a day. How much does that Ultimate Adventures go for, do you think? That number one? Uh, 25 cents. 25 cents. <laughs> That's another, if you're paying more than 25 cents, you Punch are. someone in the face. You are getting, you, you need to <laughs> start swinging. Uh, this, this is one of my favorite parts. Uh, the artist, Duncan Fagredo, Grido, is that correct? Fagredo, I don't know. He turned down a Paul Dini Penn Zatanna story for this. He is quoted as saying, On receiving the first script, Joe Quesada commented that it was a little word heavy, made <laughs> reference to us both having worked with Kevin Smith and what working with movie or TV writers was like. It was a good call. Zimmerman's script suffered from the similar problems. Overly dense, quick-fire dialogue cause and effect within the same panels. Page breaks <laughs> could be plot problematic as well. 
it was a it was all a great read and you could see things solved fine on film with sound but it's another matter on a comics page uh Fagretta mentions that character designs for hawk owl and woody were credited to ralph sorella he's another howard stern guy even though they were bare bones designs that Fagretto himself needed to build from the ground up there may have been odd elements that survived but i redesigned everything i could to say I was pissed off that the guy had a credit up front in the book, every issue is an understatement. Mm-hmm. And uh, this story, it was, it was uh, you know, you had a, a, a smart-mouthed kid and some, like, uh, crazy uh, vigilante grown-up, and he gets taken in, and it, it's basically Batman and Robin. Was it more like all-star Batman and Robin, though, or was it a classic uh, take? I'm not sure it was as good as either of those. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it wasn't very good. Um, now, the stunt itself, all three books would launch on September 18th, 2002. The contest was set to run until February 2003. Now, the final tabulations would be done, and the result would be handed down at either Wizard World Chicago, which was going to be August 8th through 10th, 2003, or Wizard World Philadelphia, which would have been May 30th to June 1st, 2003. Spoiler alert, this never happened. Mm. Uh, now, the stakes, because this was a bet. Now, if Bill Jemis's Marvel sold the least, he would have to sit in a dunk tank at one of the Wizard World conventions in 2003. If Quesada's Ultimate Adventures sold the least, he'd get a pie in the face at a convention. And if Peter David's Captain Marvel sold the least, he would have to, quote, live with the defeat. <laughs> Which uh, I guess we're going to posit that that means his book gets canceled or maybe they tie him to train tracks. Yeah. I don't know, they, they, maybe, they, maybe they call his mother and breathe heavily into the phone. Who knows? He has to go home and commit seppuku. You know, he has dishonored <laughs> he the David name. The yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the stipulations here. Peter David was given a brand new number one. And this is back in the day. This is back when the sort of thing wasn't like, hey, it's Tuesday at Marvel. Let's yeah. do a new number one. It, it, it was a sub to, you know, make a big deal about it. Yeah, I mean, you, you had a few launches a year, and they were all promoted. Uh, not like now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, he would, uh, he would have to make the first issue accessible to potential new readers and unmissable for seasoned Genesville veterans. So basically a jumping-on issue of an already-running series, which is basically what it is. Uh, he would receive two variant covers, and this is back when that sort of thing wasn't, hey, it's one minute past the hour <laughs> in Marvel offices. <laughs> and uh, one of them would feature Alex Ross on art. Uh, Marvel number one would receive variant covers as well as two different versions. Um, and we'll get into the versions insofar as the sales in just a bit. There was going to be a 32-page issue with uh, the MD Bright cover at uh, $2.25. Uh, the Captain Marvel book was also going to be two and a quarter. Um, the, all three of them were. Yeah. Uh, there was going to be a 40-page special edition with some... <laughs> and I've got this, but I've never read it because I, I couldn't find it. Um, it's got behind-the-scenes extras, which I'm dying to read now. And, uh, <laughs> a, and a foil-enhanced Udon cover that riffs on... The, it was such a weird time. Transformers was the number one comic. Wow. From Dreamwave. And uh, so they did a foil-enhanced Udon cover that was basically the Transformers. The other uh, variant cover was a porny Greg Horn cover. And that special edition was going to sell for $2.99. The whole run of Marvel had porny covers after that, though. That was a good F- part yeah. of their shtick, yeah. Yeah, and uh, Ultimate Adventures would receive no variants, no enhancements, and they would just run at the st- on the strength of the Ultimate line. And at the time, four of the top ten monthly books in the industry were Ultimate books. 
Now, that is to say every single book that had Ultimate in the title was in the top 10 every month. Wow. Selling, selling around 100,000 issues to boot. Yeah. That's uh, huge. Until now. Casada, <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is just me editorializing, but he may have been hoping for a little bit of help from the Stern people. Because, you know, Casada, uh, he's, he's kind of a star after every now and again. Yeah, he definitely is. And he's definitely one yeah, too. Who, who, who's got Captain America's shield right now? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, certain Stephen Colbert. Um, yeah, for sure. This is. Uh, I, I think it's interesting though that he was willing to let it all ride just on the strength of the brand. Uh, yeah, but with uh, with the numbers behind him, I mean, that's 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 a pretty uh, that's a smart gamble. I think looking at it right now, they they really felt that Ultimate Adventures would be the uh, runaway winner. But yeah. the the sales figures really will tell the story. So we will uh, take a look at them right here. In September two thousand two, uh, Captain Marvel. Number one was uh, position 26 with 56,819 copies. Ultimate Adventures, number one, was at position 46 with uh, 37,529 copies. Uh, Marvel, number one special edition, was at position 79 uh, to 27,158 <laughs> copies. And the regular Marvel, number one, was at 85 uh, with 26,274 copies. The total... Uh, number of Marvel, uh, Marvel number one. Both those editions, um, or all the different editions, was fifty three thousand four hundred thirty two copies, which would have been comparable to the twenty ninth highest selling book of the month. He wouldn't have won, but uh, he, <laughs> we don't know if he would have come in last. Exactly, he would have been second on this list if we if we had put those together. Uh, but things uh, they don't turn around for that book. So uh, to, October two thousand two. Captain Marvel number two was at position 50 with 34,131 copies. Ultimate Adventures number two was at position 59 with 30,394 copies. And Marvel number two was at position 66, uh, actually crept up a little bit at 29,172 copies. Um, uh, who knows why? It's starting to tighten a little bit. It is. The race is tightening. Uh, something, something, uh, must have been a bad month, though, I think, for them to get 66. <laughs> anyway. Well, the bottom's about to drop out. <laughs> yeah. In November 2002, uh, Ultimate Adventures number three was a position 81 with 26,844 copies. Captain Marvel number three was at 84 with, with 26,244 copies. And Marvel number three at 99 with 22,090 copies. At now, least they're all in the top hundred. They are. They're and, and they are and like you said, they're <laughs> for all now. still pretty close though, right? Uh, now things will change drastically for these comics. In December two thousand and two, Captain Marvel number four was at position fifty eight with thirty two thousand six hundred fifty five copies. Uh, Ultimate Adventures number four was at position seventy one with twenty nine thousand three hundred fifty seven copies. And this issue featured a guest appearance from the Ultimates, whose own book sold 131,829 copies. Uh, that was Ultimate War number one that month. Um, Ultimate War number two. Oh, that was oh, that was the same month. 124,458 copies. And Ultimates number nine sold 109,222,000 2, copies. Versus Ultimate Adventures, like I said, twenty nine thousand three hundred fifty seven. It's like, it's almost like they're not even in the same industry. You know, exactly. <laughs> like what is this? And Marvel number four at position one hundred thirteen with eighteen thousand five hundred twenty three copies. 
Uh, who's selling DC numbers now, folks? <laughs> uh, <laughs> they wish they were selling. Yeah, they were, they were looking for those DC numbers on some of these titles. Uh, January 2003, at position 51, Captain Marvel number 5 sold 332,487 copies. Ultimate Adventures number 4, it was resolicited. Uh, did not ship this month, but uh, I, I guess you're saying it eventually landed on position 76. This with, was the pre-orders. Oh, this was just off of pre-orders, so that was yeah. 24,944 copies. And uh, Marvel, the it's Originville number 5, what we were talking about, capitalizing on that origin uh, thing going on at Marvel. That was at position 107 with 18,423 copies. Now, February 2003 sales figures are just kind of strange. It shows Captain Marvel sold only 6,000 copies, so we're just going to go to the next month. Peter, per Peter David, the books ran late that month, so the numbers are uh, odd. He claims Captain Marvel was ordered at 32,000, and that would be reflected in March's list uh, in March 2003. Captain Marvel was at uh, number six, was at position 61 for uh, with uh, 29,772 copies so i guess it wasn't reflected in that list or who, not, not completely doesn't seem that way uh captain marvel number 7 also came out oh i see uh that was position 63 with 29,131 copies so this was not counted towards the final though since this was out of their you decide betting i guess uh six issue you, yeah. uh and marvel number 6 at position 146 with 14,058 copies. There was no Ultimate Adventures this month, so they were at position nothing. Yes. Now, at the end of, the, uh, at the end of this stunt, the winner was declared Captain Marvel. Yeah. Figure, right? <laughs> the, the only book written by a comic writer. Uh, well, Joe Gazzotta did do a, a decent run on, on a few books before he became editor-in-chief. Um, now, this series only lasted 25 issues anyway. Uh, along the way, David commented that the ratings in the U-Decide are frankly kind of embarrassing in regard to the standings of his competitors. He goes on to say, I kind of feel bad for Jemis, believe it or not. I know he did it to himself, <laughs> and he deserves to be trounced that badly. Wow. Now, the overall numbers, if we're going from September 2002 to March 2003, Captain Marvel moved 212,108 copies. Marvel comes in at number two. Uh, at uh, 155,698 copies, and Ultimate Adventures goes on to uh, 149,068 copies, which uh, which counts issues that uh, didn't ship. So I mean that's that's counting four twice. Okay. But, uh, but it's still so scarily close to Marvel that it actually shipped six issues. I know. And it's... had a and had the variant. That's true. They 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 had variants on the on the first one. I, I find it more telling though that those those two books, the Marvel and Ultimate Adventures, all of their issues together, you know, the four for uh, Adventures and the and the six for Marvel, still weren't a whole lot more than the average Ultimates book. You know well, what I mean? Like, really, <laughs> one one Ultimates comic was essentially doing what all these other comics together had to achieve. Absolutely. Now, when, when the result was considered a lock, Joe Casada did say on his own website that Peter David would be fired if he ever wrote another negative word about Marvel, because that means that he's, quote, not on his team. Oh, my God. To which David replied, I don't do well with threats. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the fallout here, you know, as we mentioned, Captain Marvel would run for 25 issues. Issue 8, just two months after the stunt, 
the price went from $2.25 to $2.99. So 24 cents more than the big hike from the beginning. I mean, I would really see that this is a, uh, you know, I would take it personally. I really would, you know? <laughs> this, this actually saw him gain 13 sales. Nice. <laughs> it went from 29,131 29, to 29,144. Hmm. Uh, this was April 2003. It also saw Marvel raise the price from 225 to 299 on 13 of its titles. They were all selling under 50,000, including all three U decide titles. Um, this was for the rest of Captain Marvel's run, clearly, for the uh, late issues of Ultimate Adventures that finally did come out, and the remaining epic application issue of Marvel. Marvel. Uh, the others included uh, Agent X, which was a riff on Deadpool, uh, Black Panther. Exiles, Iron Man, Soldier X, which is what Cable turned into, Thor, Spider-Girl, Thunderbolts, Weapon X, and X-Statics, which is what X-Force turned into. Uh, Ultimate Adventures and Marvel have and continue to inhabit many a worst books of the you-enter-the-time-frame-here list. Uh, you know, just uh, for, for, you know, for the benefit of completion, let's uh, list the remaining You Decide sales. Uh, when Ultimate Adventures number four finally came out in July of 2003, it was ranked at number 111 and sold 20,440 copies. Uh, Ultimate Adventures five shipped in August, so just a month later, uh, that uh, wound up at uh, position 131 and sold 16,305 copies. Ooh. Yeah, and then Ultimate Adventures six, the grand finale, uh, cover dated January 2004. You know, shipped in November, but the cover date is 04. Yeah. That came out at uh, number 112 and sold 15,018 copies. I mean, did, uh, did people even, were people even, like, cognizant of this comic anymore at this time? Like, they were just like... I think it was just, yeah, I, I know. I, <laughs> it, 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 to, to the surprise of nobody, I have the entire thing. But, <laughs> you know, uh, I think the, uh, the man on the street or woman on the street did not care. Uh, speaking of not caring, Marvel <laughs> number seven, which is the epic comics application. There are there's no story here. It is basically if you want to write a co write a comic for Epic, this is what you do. Yeah. And, and you open it up, and the first page is Mark Miller's Trouble comic. I don't know if you remember that. I do. Oh yeah. Where they tried to make it so Aunt May was Spider Man's uh, mother. It was uh, really. Uh... It was bad. Yeah. The Terry Dodson art was nice, but it was bad. Um, so Marvel number seven, May 2003, ranked at number 147 and sold 12,897 copies. I mean, that's just that's just like not worth printing. That's anemic. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now nobody has any record of Jemis being dunked in a tank or Casada being pied in the face. So I, I gotta just assume that this was all just forgotten. Or maybe at this point in time, Jemis was already on the outs. Yeah, I, I just don't. I don't know. I think. I think you know. Maybe the egos were too uh, big to allow themselves to follow through with it. Possibly, I don't know what it is, but I. I, I think or there should maybe be some. They took the, maybe they took the sales numbers as realizing that the fans didn't care anyway. Yeah, basically. I mean, for all we know, maybe it did happen, and no one even paid attention to that. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe it happened in an issue of uh, Ultimate Adventures, and that's why no one knows. <laughs> this, is, this is before the day of the uh, cell phone camera or video camera. Oh, yeah, for sure. The, you know, that would now be broadcast around the world. Oh, yeah. um, I'd say, you know, the whole thing is just so insane that, that this would happen in a company, that they're just sort of, like, playing with the company's fortunes with these, like, yes. you know, weird, this weird gimmicky thing. It's kind of good they had the Ultimates line. It seems like that probably 
help them float through the mitigated. Uh, yeah, a little bit of the damage being done here. Um, but you know, this was not the first, and it was it's not either the last uh, stunt <laughs> pulled in comics. There are there are so many out there, and we will probably talk about lots of them over the years. But there were just a handful that we came up with. We wanted to talk about other similar kind of uh, fan uh, stunts involving the fans. There's of course the uh, Jason Todd one nine hundred. Do you want? Do you want to kill Robin thing? We covered this in a previous installment of Weird Comics History. Um, that was back when we were still part of the regular podcast. You can go find that probably from last May or June or something like that. Around then, yeah. Um, in brief, DC set up two 1-900 numbers at 50 cents a call where fans could vote if they wanted Jason Todd or Robin, the second one, to live or die at the hands of the Joker. Uh, the fatal option won out 5,343 to 5,000. 271 and it made DC $5,307. Dial H for Hero was a series which started in Showcase in the 70s and eventually moved on to its own. And this was essentially send in your, you know, superhero designs and they would show up in the comic, uh, usually four to five superheroes apiece, uh, each issue, I mean. And uh, these were all just, you know, I I think there may have been a make $15 type deal, but. Um, you definitely did not get to keep the rights to your characters. The, the old sugar and spike ploy. It's similar. I was thinking of that too when we <laughs> talked about this. You know, write write a issue of sugar and spike or a sugar and spike thing and send it in. <laughs> and next thing you know, it's probably the, it's uh you know this this joke sent in by little Harriet whatever from Sheboygan Idaho or whatever. Age eight. Yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> now I'm writing comics. Uh, and you know this this is a kind of a really broad subject, but the comics coupons. Um, yeah. It, during the speculator boom, this is something we will be addressing for sure in a long form, probably multi-part episode. But uh, there was there were occasions where a family of books all came with a numbered coupon, and if a fan were to clip the coupon from each title and mail them in, with you know obviously paying some shipping and handling, they would receive an exclusive special issue. This uh, image in Valiant did it, and this was also in Marvel's X-Men titles to receive Magneto number zero, which is a quarter bin filler in Chris's neck of the woods. Uh, he's got quite a quarter bin out there. Let me tell you, you got Marvel, it's got uh, Magneto, <laughs> Ultimate Adventure, got Ultimate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's got some great stuff in there. <laughs> head out, head out by Chris's way and check out the quarter bins. Uh, remember, this was during the boom, so fans were concerned about the monetary value of their books. They would have to buy multiple copies to make up for the incomplete coupon clipped version. So it really was a, uh, you know, unkind gimmick to be playing on the yeah. fans. You know, they they knew what side their bread was buttered on, and they were gonna push two or more issues by doing this kind of shtick. So, uh, and that's just a handful. There are so many. You know, to say the words comic book and stunt or publishing gimmick are almost synonymous. Uh, yield seven billion results on Google. Yeah, I mean it goes back. It really goes back to the golden age. You know, clip out the thing and get the ray gun or get the button or become a member of the Justice Society booster squad or whatever the hell it was. It's always some, something to uh, foment some kind of interaction. The but, Superman fan club. You made us do it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I think that wraps us up for the You Decide yeah. event. Definitely one of the weirdest episodes we've ever done. Uh, I would like to mention that this whole thing was essentially set up by Chris, who was elbow deep in it at the time, so he's a lot more familiar. I knew of it and had read Marvel after the fact, but I was not really uh, steeped in many of these comics. Uh, and as li- regular listeners know, I'm definitely Marvel is a real weak point for me. So 
uh, I really thank Chris for putting it all together, making it work, making it happen, making it coherent, which is the most important part. Um, but if you want to write to us and tell us that it wasn't coherent or you have your own memories of the You Decide event, stunt, I'm sorry, not an event, and, uh, or you want to tell us whatever else, you can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. If you want to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. And every week you should read Chris is on infiniteearth.blogspot.com, where though I have not read Peter David's run on Aquaman, I did read a review you wrote. Yes. On one of the issues when he actually loses his hand. Oh, no, is that where he loses his hand, right? Yep. Aquaman um, number two, yep. And let me tell you, I, f- I almost felt like I was right there reading it right over your shoulder. So yeah, that, that's what I endeavor to do. That's the that, that's the kind of experience you want. You want to read the comic without having to read it. Chris did the work for you. He's breaking them down. He's being very witty and funny. And there's a new DC comic every day of the week, so you should definitely check that out when you uh, have time on your hands. But uh, is that all we got for him? You got anything else? I think that's it. Well, uh, for Weird Comics History, uh, this is uh, Reggie and Chris, and we hope you decide to keep it weird. It's not easy having yourself a good time Greasing up those beds and feathers Watching